Welcome to Mill Resource Radio, where we highlight military and veteran support organizations. Hear directly from organization leaders and those who've benefited from their services. Thousands of organizations exist, but if you don't know about them, how do you seek their help? Join us for discovery, access, and knowledge about effective military and veteran organizations sharing their missions and accomplishments directly with you. And now here are your hosts, Linda Crater and Les Davis. We are so delighted that you're here with us this morning. The title of our program today is Veteran Suicide is Not Inevitable. I think we all know that there has been a lot of publicity, about 22 a day, and many groups are trying to find out solutions to this very pervasive problem. Today we have on with us two strong experts in suicide prevention education. First, we have on Paul Quinnett, psychologist, professor, and CEO of the QPR Institute, and that's an organization dedicated to suicide prevention education and ultimately saving lives. We also have Dr. John Osborne, who is a VA physician and professional colleague of Paul's, who also works closely in the military suicide prevention awareness and education space. I'm joined today by Justin Constantine as my co-host, and we've decided after going over this amount of information that there is so much important information to share in a single program. So we're going to break it into a multi-part series, but definitely give you information today of immediate value about the overview of the suicide prevention problem, the lack of medical provider training, and also how warrior psychology and serving veterans where they are, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling, warrior psychology and serving vets right where they are can truly help, and our awareness can grow on this show, and we will we are just so delighted to bring you Paul Quinnett and John Osborne. Welcome to Military Network Radio. Thank you, Linda. This is Paul. It's Thank a delight you. to have you both. I think we could start with an overview of just how big the problem is, and that will elicit discussion between all of us because I think we're all a little too close to this for comfort. Well, this is Paul, and I, I'll just give a couple of highlights. Uh, first of all, that suicide is our most preventable death, and it's also a huge public health problem, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. And the World Health Organization estimates we lose about 800,000 people per year to suicide, which is more than all our wars and murders put together. Um, and some say it may be a million because many countries underreport or don't report at all. Uh, here in the U.S., we're about mid-ranked in terms of first-world countries in our suicide rates, and we lose about 13 people um, <clears throat> per 100,000 every uh, uh, year or day, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so we're, we're at, uh, I mean, that's per year, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling there. I always think of it as a football field full of 100,000 fans, and at the end of one year, 13 of them will have died by suicide. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's a way to think, put your head around that number. But the point is, I think that where veterans are at elevated risk for suicide simply by reason of being a veteran, whether or not they served in combat or not, uh, and there's substantial research on that, and I think all of us agree that 22 is totally an unacceptable number, but so is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I invite, you know, any questions from the audience about the rates and all of that, but, but our National Guard and Reserves are somewhat higher. Um, 
By and large, however, we have to keep in mind that, that veterans and active military are generally a very healthy population, lots of very good, smart people, and they're not that different from the general population uh, in terms of their suicide rates. So we have a, a large uh, problem to tackle, and uh, lots of people are beginning to work on it. We can use a lot more work, and we can use a lot of help from people in your audience. Well, you know, Paul, that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you talk on the program. I think people are afraid to talk about suicide, whether it's attempts, ideation, just thinking about it, talking to someone who thinks about it. And I was really surprised when I spoke with you, and you mentioned that there was no medical school, nursing school, social work school that teaches about how to identify at-risk individuals and how to interact with them. You had asked me to ask a family member if he had gotten training uh, because he's a recent medical school graduate. The answer was no. There was zero. Can you speak right. to that a bit? Well, I. <clears throat> this is a, a, a suicide prevention is a relatively new field in the sense that it's probably 60 years old mm -hmm. from its founding as a, a kind of a special area of interest in research. But the amount of knowledge we now have uh, that could save lives is not being percolated through the curriculum of the graduate schools or nursing schools or medical schools that train people to to go into the field and, and serve all of us as their patients. And I uh, wrote kind of an angry rant in 2009 <laughs> to a listserv of experts saying, when are we going to call the colleges and universities to account and say, let's start training people. We have knowledge. We have skills. These things will make a difference. And so that led to a publication of a white paper on the training deficit. Mm -hmm. And our focus there was in mental health. And you would think that mental health professionals uh, would have had this training. And there's a little bit here and a little bit there. But in general, the, the, the training deficit is huge. Only half of psychologists get any training at all. About 25% of social workers get a little dab. And only about 6% of counselors in general get anything at all. So we have a nationally standardized exam that we give on this area of practice, and the fail rate is 90% across all the professions except psychiatry. Why? Because psychiatry has in their standards uh, for training psychiatrists, they do have sections on suicide and its prevention, assessment, and management. So John, John's on with us. He's been to medical school. He's been at the VA for, for a long time. John, you want to speak to that, your perceptions? <laughs> Yeah, I've been on. Uh, I've, I've been taking care of veterans for about uh, thirty years. I should, Linda. I should just note that I am not an expert in suicide prevention. I, my specialty is internal medicine. Um, in my thirty years, you know, I've worked in different capacities uh, for the VA, um, running a clinic, running the HIV/AIDS program, even as chief of medicine. But I have to say, I, I I've never had uh, any training. In suicide prevention, I didn't have it in medical school. I didn't have it during my residency. And uh, I, I've never received any uh, uh, training uh, through the VA other than that which I tried to organize as chief of medicine. So it just, it, I think, underscores the point that Paul's trying to make here. You know, John, I'm going to echo that with the fact that um, I work with the caregivers of the wounded, ill, and injured, and a lot of female veterans. And I, too, have no formal training, although I'm getting your training right now. Um, but it isn't a matter of 
getting a for- the formal training so much as just knowing how to do no harm, how to talk, how important communication is, um, the warning signs that are sometimes precursors, the, the high-risk factors. And I, I would like us to talk about some of these, the high-risk factors. But I have been involved personally with 176 suicide preventions where my goal was to get them to the helplines, the suicide prevention coordinators, as quickly as possible, 911 in some cases, and it's nerve-wracking. And so I think it happens to more of us than we talk about because if you're in a position where you're working around these kinds of people who have some serious issues, and actually many people who are living normal lives, a trauma comes into their life and suddenly it's the title of Paul's book, The Forever Decision. And so I think that it's important that we do share how prevalent it is and to talk about some of the demystifying, the stereotypes. The problem is large. Um, can you talk to one of these, either one of you? I would like to hear about this. I know that the prevailing attitude among most people I speak with, whether it's family, uh, church members, uh, family members of suicidal attempt people, is that if we talk about suicide, it's going to make them do it. Can you speak to that sentence? Because I hear that more often than anything. That is the most common, most prevalent belief about suicide. If you speak about it, it will happen. It mm-hmm. will cause somebody to think about it, and they will act on that thought. And therefore, you become part of the cause of a suicide. Mm-hmm. Just the opposite is true. There's been several research studies now, including one published in the Journal of American Medicine, showing that talking about suicide does not increase risk, does not put ideas in people's heads. Believe me, there are 8 million American adults out there today, many of them, some of them perhaps listening to this radio show, who have active suicidal thoughts. Their problems seem so overwhelming and so insoluble that they're thinking about this as a solution. And by not being able to talk about it with anybody and not being able to have a conversation with your health care professional uh, or your mental health person, you are at greater risk because you're more isolated. You can't, you can't even get somebody to listen to you talk about how bad you feel. Mm-hmm. And you understand that the majority of people who end their own lives are suffering from a mental illness, a treatable mental illness. Mm-hmm. And this is the tragedy of it, is that the, is if you have clinical depression and you're not sleeping and you're losing weight and you have no interest in fun, food, or sex, you're in trouble. You have a, a biological illness, a, a disorder, dysfunction in the brain that needs treatment, needs care and respite and quality sleep and so forth. And those things are the those terrible feelings in the, in the head and heart and the brain are what's driving the thoughts of, I can stop consciousness by killing myself and stop this suffering. So when we lean into people who appear to be distressed and we talk with them and say, wow, you really look like you're going through a rough spot here. Let's go get some coffee and talk about this. When you make that outreach just as a friend or a coworker or a battle buddy, whatever, you suddenly open the door for this person to start telling and talking about what they're going through, and you can then offer that support. That's what the QPR thing is all about, is leaning into people's pain, not leaning away from it. You know, I'm, I'm very moved by all of this, and I, I'm so eager to talk further after the break. I think that 
taking these thoughts and making people realize that they can be part of the solution and a possible help to support someone uh, is very, very important. And just talking about things can indeed cause someone to feel valued again and less isolated. I think that it's extremely important also to take a look after the break about how the warrior psychology fits into all of this, because I think it really does have some bearing on how to talk, how to listen, and where we will go from there. And we are here with Paul Quinnett and John Osborne talking about veteran suicide is not inevitable. And we will be right back after this commercial break. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a family caregiver in the military community? Join us on VeteranCaregiver.com. In the military and veteran community, there are 5.5 million caregivers of our nation's injured, ill, and wounded. Whether your family member served in World War II or in the most recent Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there are unique needs of military and veteran caregivers. Navigating any medical system takes skill and help in obtaining good care. Veteran Caregiver has access to a rich network of advocates and organizations to assist you. Find excellent resources, short informative videos, an active Facebook community, and empathetic support. Veteran Caregiver supports those from every service branch and those who served in any conflict. Need information on sandwich caregiving, EFMP, or aging issues? VeteranCaregiver.com provides information and community to those managing busy lives with compassionate care. That's VeteranCaregiver.com. Support for those who care. We're here with Paul Quinnett and John Osborne talking about suicide is not inevitable in our military population. And Justin, you had a question for our doctors. Yeah, I sure do. Thanks, Linda. And Paul, I want to go over to you. Now, two, two questions I'd like you to address. First is, you mentioned early on, is that veterans who haven't served in combat are just as likely to commit suicide as those who have. So I'd like to start with that. That might be surprising to some of our listeners. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. I, I wouldn't say I'm an in-depth expert on this, but the data, the research that's being published shows that uh, combat does not necessarily add additional uh, risk compared to people who never deployed. If, if you look at the numbers of deaths by the DOD reports, uh, you have just as many suicides, in fact, more uh, at, back in uh, from people who never deployed to a combat area. And so... And I think you could you can come up with some reasons for that. One is that if you're in combat, you are much needed. You, you're you're uh, you, you're everybody's counting on you. And so when people are needed, they, their suicide risk goes down. It's when you feel you become a burden to others you, that you're a burden on your unit or your squad or your company that you're not doing your job. That's when the risk goes up. And um, uh, the other part of it is that a lot of people think of moral injury as things that people do in combat that is uh, that they feel bad about afterward, and, you, and certainly that's a prominent issue. But I've had it pointed out to me that many soldiers who don't get a chance to deploy, <clears throat> you know, they're 
trained to for combat, they want to be in combat, they want to be in the fight, and they can't get there because they can't get orders to get there, that those people can also feel badly about what's happened on the battlefield that they see coming home. They see the, the you know, people coming back, uh, you know, in caskets, and they say, why, why, why them, not me? And so I think we have to understand that the warrior psychology fits across all branches and all of the, um, the psychology is very similar. Uh, yeah, that you, you, I think you know what I'm talking about. So I, I do, and that that does make sense because I guess the first instinct is, well, if you've gone to, and this is not accurate, I don't think, if you've gone to combat, you must have PTSD, and then therefore maybe you're more likely to commit suicide. But I think we know that that in fact, uh, the civilian population. You know, well, I should say the veteran population is just a sliver of the rest of the civilian population. Any challenges we face with PTSD are exactly the same as we see out in the civilian population. Just, you know, of course, there's many more civilians, so it's on a larger scale there. So uh, what you say makes sense. There's no reason to think just because someone went to war that they're more inclined to commit suicide than anyone else. Well, you talked about the warrior psychology and the warrior mentality, and let's explore that and what you mean by that and how that plays into this overall topic. Well, I've been studying men uh, for most of my career as a psychologist, and um, I'm a veteran myself a long time ago. (laughs) DEFCON 2 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You don't have to do the math here. But uh, so I have been studying. The biggest phenomenon that concerns me is that we're relying on social marketing that says it it takes the courage of a warrior to ask for help. We see it everywhere. And I've asked myself, why don't men ask for help? And you can ask yourself, why don't men ask for directions? Ask any female spouse of a a male driver lost in a city, and she'll be yelling at him to ask for directions. And he won't do that. And so I've drilled down into the sort of evolutionary history of warriors. We're all from warriors, everybody on the planet. Uh, 100,000 years ago, lived in small units, 150 people, villages. Long before we began farming, which was only 12,000 years ago, we were hunter-gatherers, and that meant we were at war or in uh, in battle with our neighbors constantly for for access to hunting grounds and so forth. And if you look at that whole history and then look at the forensic evidence of digging up old ancient battles, you found that up to 60% of young men died in battle because it was all fatal fighting. There was no, uh, we're going to quit today and go home. It was all a fight to the death with with edged weapons, with clubs, uh, with spears and bows. And lots of people died uh, in these combats uh, down through history. And so you have to ask yourself, well, who survived? Well, who survived was your dad, your great-great-grandfather, and mine, and everybody else who's listening. You're, you were the better warrior in those battles. And so as a result, there are some rules that evolved down through history. Uh, you know, the joke of why did Moses wander 40 years in the desert? That's because he had to ask a stranger for directions. <laughs> and, and we have every veteran who has to ask for help. Here's what I call banjo music from the film Deliverance. You're lost. You're in somebody else's turf. You have no business being there. And if he catches you, he has the right to turn you into a slave, torture you, rape you, kill you, whatever he wants to do. And if you just people want to drill into that, Google warrior psychology, and it's a pretty interesting piece of history that we all ought to grasp because I don't think men 
can suddenly start asking for help just because we want them to. And I'm afraid it's impacting our female veterans as well because part of their training is to be into the warrior culture. And so I think it's time we change some terms, start at, stop asking veterans to ask for help, and just offer to help them because accepting help is very different than asking for it. If you're a hunter you? and you... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you. Finish that sentence. Oh, I just said, if you're a hunter and you've killed a big elk, unless you're going to eat it all yourself, you're going to need your friends to help you with that. And if they come by and offer to help you, you will accept that help. But you might not ask for it. And that's been the kind of theme I've been pounding on is let's go to the veterans where they are, use the people in their social networks, their loved ones, their care providers, their volunteers working with them. Everybody who cares about veterans needs to understand what they can do and that you can't wait for these people, these folks to ask for help. You bring up such an important point because you often see isolation, depression, but everyone says, just call the helpline. You can call. You can be brave. And there are more than a dozen helplines that you can call. And you say, reach out and talk to them. Don't they have to also then understand that you are receptive to hearing it? I know that I read something where you talked about how if the physicians are not trained and someone comes to them and asks them about help, that if they show fear in being talked to or making the veteran feel uncomfortable, they're not going to ask for help again. And I think that's that's why you, me, John, Justin, I'm sure, have been called sometimes because we can be trusted not to recoil in horror, but to say, what can I do to help? And I think that even just a receptivity that listening to someone is important, that's point A. But point B is... Could you speak to the problem of isolation and how that can be a red flag if you're a family member? Well, I, yeah, and I can't overemphasize that. People who are thinking about ending their lives, they can't do this, or they rarely do it in public or with anybody that, around that might be able to stop them. It's, an, it's a very <laughs> lonely decision, and they often will break off relationships, stop returning phone calls or texts. And they'll begin to isolate in a usually in a you know in a single space, a room or something. And if they add alcohol to that and there's a weapon available, you just have a very bad, bad situation. And that's why we have to, in my view, once we've identified somebody at risk, we need to <laughs> pester them with love. We need to go to them, we need to visit them, we need to make sure they're okay. Um, I used to I trained a whole staff for outreach to our at-risk elders living alone in our town in Spokane County, Washington, in the city there. And we literally had people identify them for us, whether they were postal workers or gas meter readers or pharmacists. And then we sent teams of nurses, social workers to their homes and and insisted through kindness and compassion that we could be of help to them. And we did that. And the suicide rate for people over 65 in our county dropped dramatically. We didn't start out to prevent suicide, but it dropped. And it remained the lowest suicide rate in the county, uh, in our county, in the whole state of Washington. And right across the border in North Idaho, the suicide rate among people over 65 without such a program is five times higher. Oh, my. So, 
So, it, yes, this is, I'm not making this up. We won the Kennedy Award for Innovations in Psychiatry the year that program was vetted by the federal government. And so we know this can do, we can do this. But people cannot let veterans isolate and withdraw, become get lonely, and, and have to endure this uh, suffering by themselves. What are some of the warning signs that family members, friends, battle buddies can look for? Well, we teach those in our course, uh, suicidal communications, what people say, how they say it, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, indications that we would all look at as not inability to sleep, uh, moodiness, flashes of anger that seem out of context, um, giving away prized possessions, saying goodbyes, doing all, there's a, there's quite a roster of warning signs, but what I try to get across to folks is, if somebody does something that makes you feel fear, then that's a warning sign. Like if you feel concerned for somebody, they just said or did something that was out of character for them, and it, it, it disturbed me when I saw it, do not dismiss fear. Fear is your most trustworthy emotion. And if you feel it, act on it. My goodness. I'm, I'm just I'm picturing this, and we don't have time before the break to go into what you say to do to act upon it, but I'd like to discuss that after, after the break. But the isolation, the giving away of belongings, um, all of this is, is very important. Anything else that comes to mind? We have less than a minute. Well, I, as I said, there are, the, there are behavioral warning signs, things people do, Mm-hmm. making arrangements for their funeral, stockpiling pills, purchasing a firearm. These are actions that people take, and then there are things they say, either in text or in phone call or face-to-face. And that's what we try to teach are, are these various kinds of warning signs. And <clears throat> some of them are subtle because there's so much fear and stigma talking about suicide, you can't say it directly or it'll scare people. So mm-hmm. they hint about it. They use oblique language. They kind of skirt around it and hint at it. And okay. that's their testing. Okay. Excuse me, Paul. <laughs> Let's hold that thought, and we will come back after the break, and we will be right back after this commercial. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on iTunes, and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. with 
Paul Quinnett and John Osborne. Paul, perhaps you could talk about the QPR Institute, how it came to be, what you study, and what your goals are. Well, the goals are simple. We believe in excellence in education can empower people to lean into the lives of people who may be at risk for suicide and help them survive a crisis. We don't have to start an IV and do major surgery. We simply have to lean in and relieve some of their immediate pain and suffering and see to it that they get some care. The acronym grew out of the the questioning part is QP stands for question, persuade, and refer. And the questioning came from the fact that lots of warning signs need clarification, like somebody might say to, her, to her, their pastor, what happens to people who kill themselves? Do they go to heaven? That's not a rhetorical question. And John would know if a depressed patient says, when you give them a prescription, is this enough medicine to kill a person? That's not a chemistry question. That may be an intention that I am going to use this to overdose. So what the Q stands for is how do you clarify what that meaning was? Because if it's true that they were thinking about killing themselves and you ask them that bluntly, most people who are will say yes. Now you have a window of opportunity to get in there and do something compassionate and good and protect that person. The the challenge for medical settings, and we'll get to this later, but is that they don't often question that. Mm-hmm. 70-some percent of people who take their own lives in my age group, older people, die on a prescription written for them that week by their physician. That's crazy. So the the persuasion part is active listening. You, you learn to sit on your anxiety and listen to people. Let them tell their story and get out of the way and just let them talk. And the R part is the referral piece. So it's, it's we use the same chain of survival that CPR uses, early recognition of symptoms, early intervention, early treatment, and follow-up with that care afterward. Um, the Institute is uh, grew out of my work in public health and mental health in Spokane, the agency there, started in 99. We now have 7,000 instructors. We're training 20,000 people a month, both in classroom and online. We have, we're in five countries or more now. Um, it's a very active uh, program. We're training entire workforces, and uh, we have 15 million dollars in federal research to support the intervention as safe and effective, which is important. Uh, And we have ongoing research projects. And let me say that not everybody is not teaching QPR or something like this. Mm -hmm. The School of Nursing in Bozeman, Montana emailed me the other day and said they're now training all their nurses in QPR. So I was pleased with that. And I know some of the veterans systems use us, but it's a basic intervention. Anybody can learn it. And, um, we have evidence that it's doing what we promised it would do, which is to identify and get people the care they need as quickly as possible. Well, Paul, when you're talking about the, you say you train 20,000 people for months, who are you training and, and how does that work? Well, we train, we have, we train instructors uh, who then train in small groups of 20 to 35 people. So there's probably 600 colleges and universities training every day, lots of public health departments, mental health systems, um, military units uh, use the program. Uh, we just cracked the code with sporting teams in Ireland, so all the, all the major sporting teams in that country in a membership of 250,000 people are going to go through QPR training to identify at-risk athletes. Uh, we did a project with the Boy Scouts 
with an Eagle Scout project, taught a, a scout how to become an instructor as a co-trainer with his father. That was successful, waiting for more developments on that. So if you think about a CPR equivalent, you know, your odds of surviving a heart attack in a non-hospital setting vary by city depending on how many people are trained. So most cities in America, if you have a heart attack in a public place, you're probably going to die. But if you're in Seattle, King County, your odds of surviving are 10 times higher than most cities. 6% survival rate, say, in uh, Dallas or whatever, is 62% in King County. Why? Because every fourth person, every adult there uh, has been trained in CPR for early recognition and response to a cardiac event. No city in the world can claim that. And yet there it is with the chain of command, the chain of survival all in place, good units, uh, good cardiac units could follow up the whole thing. So this is what we're aiming for, massive public education. When I, when I reviewed your material, you talked about another city that has a very high survival rate. Uh, did I say another city? When I reviewed your material, you talked about another city, Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, because that's the surveillance. That, that's what my work in the Army was in Army intelligence. But I don't, don't laugh, but um, <laughs> that I was in the ASA back in the beginning. And everything we did was intelligence gathering. Why do you need intelligence? So you can have actions you can take actions to prevent things from happening so it's all based on surveillance and if you have great surveillance you have great risk detection and if you can detect the risk you can identify it assess it and manage it and if you can't do those things you can't manage risk you don't know about and that's why we're training people to be careful observers trained observers of those in their life in their social network their brothers sisters adult parents, whatever it is. We want everybody to be on their toes and looking for the onset of symptoms of distress. So in Vegas, they have cameras everywhere. People are watching everything you do, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, every <laughs> casino, the survival rate in the casino, the one study I saw was 70%. It's <laughs> amazing. Surviving a heart attack. John, you want to comment on this? You're, you work with this kind of stuff. Oh, I, Paul, you're doing great. The medical model, actually, early identification of symptoms and early treatment is the thing right. that prevents, yeah. you know, problems getting worse. When you talk about the social network, what do you mean by that? The people, if you ask people three questions and, they, and you write down those answers, that'll tell you who needs to be trained. Who cares enough about you to listen to your problems? Who will go out of their way to come and see you if you're having a problem? And who do you trust? Those are the three questions. This is done on VA populations. Most men will name only three or four people. Most women will name five or six or seven on average that they consider intimate others, people I trust, people who will go out of their way to help me, and people I can tell my problems to. If you identify, ask, if, you, if, if I could do this, we do this in boot camp. And then we'd follow those people. They would become that soldier's social network through their entire career with permission to contact them if that soldier got in trouble. And that's just a dream I had. But my point is that all of us have this intimate other network, and sometimes it's our physician, sometimes it's not. Uh, but that social network is, is not very big, and it's trainable, and it's, it's just like a, what's the smallest fighting unit is a squad. So 
if everybody in your squad knows what to do, then you have a better chance of surviving. So how, how would that work? If you know people take CPR because they want to be able to save a loved one around them or save someone in a restaurant or something like that, they want to know some basic life-saving techniques. And so I guess is your idea that the same is true with QPR, where people should be interested in how to identify if someone around them is exhibiting uh, indicia of committing suicide? That's exactly what we can. We have story after story of exactly that's what happens. People like see, see a warning sign, and they lean in, and they ask about it, and sure enough, the person's thinking about suicide, so they, we give them some support things they can do. You know, can we store your weapon over here away from you while, to keep you safe? We have a number of interventions that people are perfectly capable of carrying out, but you have to get over the fear factor. And, and that's, uh, that's the thing that we're, that's part of the training is to get comfortable and feel competent to do this. So you get to do a role play, you get to practice with this just like you do with CPR and a dummy. You know, you, you get used to doing this a little bit and practice it a little bit so that it feels kind of automatic when it happens. When people go to your training, is it, is it all live training like a CPR training would be? It is, yes. Most of it's live. We do have it online with downloadable role plays that you can download and print and get, a, get somebody to practice with. Uh, we're, we're focused on where the rates are highest, and that's in, in rural America, in farm country, ranch country. The suicide rates are five times higher for men, and a lot of those people are veterans. A lot of our Native American men are living off in rural areas, and the only way we can get to them sometimes is by, is by training online. In fact, we're training the employees in the state of Wyoming. You talk about a rural state, uh, and they're taking the training online, starting with the governor. Well, you know, so Paul, I, I think that what I'm hearing from you is the, the QPR, and I want to be sure that we go over that a number of times so our listeners hear what that means. Question, right. persuade, and referral. I'm assuming, and that's always a dangerous thing to do, so talk into this, that you question, you actively listen and, and persuade, and then you, as soon as possible, refer to those who are trained. Is that accurate? That's correct, yes. Okay, so QPR. Justin, what's QPR stand for? <laughs> Question, persuade, refer. There you go. <laughs> I, I think those are the little things that make a difference. Remember when people didn't know CPR? That was you know, a, a big problem. So question, persuade, referral. With probably, I'm guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, Paul, that the persuade part, the active listening, is probably the hardest for people to learn and feel comfortable yeah. with. Is that correct? It, it is. Uh, it depends on what kind of a listener you are. We teach listening skills, and we teach, you know, what your emotional reactions you have to deal with. If you have a friend who says something like, I want you to take my animals because where I'm going, I can't take them, and you say, I know you've been depressed and going through a divorce. Are you thinking about ending your life? And they say, yes. Now you have to decide can you tolerate having this conversation? Are you going to say, oh, well, I, you know, and, and get out of the conversation? No, we're, we're asking you to do a very courageous thing, which is to lean into that pain and be quiet and sit on your own fear and let that person talk because most of them are literally dying to talk. And, and that's why it's so important to be able to do this. And by, by the way, the training is enormously helpful, but if people out there in the audience are concerned about somebody, don't wait to get the training. 
you know, lean in and ask that question now. We don't want to have any unnecessary loss of life. So, Not to mention that with the social networks today, there's usually somebody among the group that would be willing to refer if it appeared to be imminent. So question, persuade, refer. QPR is the new CPR for suicide prevention. We're with Drs. Paul Quinnett and John Osborne, and we're talking about suicide prevention. We will be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. dynamic woman? Sandra Beck and Linda Crater host Dynamic Women Talk Radio, bringing lively weekly shows in a roundtable format with influential guests from around the globe. This amazing tribe of diverse and accomplished women share their candid views on topics such as reputation, handling rejection, loyalty, what is sexy, overthinking, blended families, and much more. Discussions are joyful, with freedom to address topics from various perspectives with candor, respect, and no judgment. These are the conversations you wish you could have with all your family and friends. Dynamic women have lived their lives boldly, with unexpected and sometimes undesired turns in the road of life. Yet detours and bumps bring opportunity, personal growth, more authenticity, and a fresh outlook. Join our welcoming tribe of Dynamic Women each Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, also on iTunes, and more information at dynamicwomentalkradio.com. Celebrating vibrant, charismatic women everywhere. break, we talked about the fact that it's well and good to say, go ahead and ask people questions, actively listen. But what does that sound like? So I've asked if Justin and Paul, or Paul and John, you guys decide among yourselves, would have a role play about what a typical question, persuade, referral would sound like. So I'm going to turn it over to you all. (laughs) John, do you want to, or uh, uh, Justin, do you want to be the guy in trouble? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to play the veteran. Okay, you are uh, one. I, I am one. <laughs> and so, so, who, so, who would you be? You need to. You need to. Let's assume that we're in a relationship. We've been friends for four or five years, and you're going through something, uh, something bad. You you think whatever it is, and you've not been sleeping and yeah. and uh, drinking too much, and you you send me a warning sign. Okay. Um, Hey, Paul. Um, I know it's been a little while since we talked. It's just that I've been kind of trying to get off the radar. I'm just so sick and tired of, you know, all the comments from my ex and the fights we've been having about our son. And I don't know. I guess I should stick around for him, but I'm really ready to just kind of check out and move on. Check out. You mean like go up to another station? Are you talking about something more serious? Well... I don't know. Um, last night I was just drinking and thinking about things, and I guess after about six or seven drinks, I realized that maybe there's no reason for me to really be around. I'm not helping anyone. I'm in pain all the time, so what's the point? Yeah, I get it. 
Okay, I know you a long time. I care about you. I need to know if you're thinking about taking your own life. You had any thoughts of suicide? Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like I used to contribute a lot, especially when we were over in Iraq together, where I did good stuff. We all hang out, but you know, I live in the middle of nowhere now. I don't see anyone. I don't talk to anyone. And so, yeah, I kind of thought maybe I should just end things and stop being a burden. Okay. Well, let me let me uh, let me help you here. I uh, care about you. You're not going to get this done because people love you and. I, you're in a bad spot with the way you're thinking and feeling right now. I get that. But I need to help you get some help because I think what's going on here is a fixable problem, and I don't want to see you end your life. So what I'd like to do is you tell me more about this. we got, you know, we got an hour here. I'm not going to do any drinking, and you can drink if you like. But when we're done here, we're going to go to the chaplain. Or, you know, you choose. We go to mental health, go, you know, but I'm going to take you there and I'm going to be with you on this deal. I'll sit in there with you if you like, but we're going to, this is above my pay grade to know what to say and do here, but I know that this is a fixable problem and I want you to go with me to do that. Would you do that? Well, I, I guess I, I guess I could, but, you know, I'm just going to get in trouble. Uh, it's going to be on my record. I'm, I don't really see the benefit of doing any of that. Well, I know what's going to happen, and we can figure a way around the records issue, but I need you to help me help you, and I really need your help with this. What do you say? Uh, well, I One guess try. If, if you're going to be there, then, I will. then, then maybe uh, I, I, I could do that. Okay. Solid. Okay. Okay, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Was that hard Thanks. for you, Justin? I, I have a feeling that you've heard these discussions among your friends um, yeah. many times. Yeah, it, it is hard because I have had those conversations, and that's why I'm, I'm really glad that Paul is working on QPR because if I'm having the conversations with people, then so is everyone else, and a lot of people aren't having those conversations, but they're, a lot of people are suffering. Absolutely. Well, the key, the pieces to this were that, one, he didn't say directly what he was planning to do. He hinted at it. Mm -hmm. So I had to clarify that that's what he meant, right? Even right. though what he was saying gave us all chills, somebody asked to bring the S word in. Suicide is a lot harder to talk about than sex. Mm -hmm. So I brought the S word in. He concurred. He's resistant to go. Everybody's going to be resistant. They've already given up hope that anything can get any better. Now, I've got to convince him, and the way I convince him to do this is I say, I need you to help me, because now he's part of the solution. He know, he's not going to refuse my asking him for help, is he? Mm-mm. Oh, okay, so once I get him in that tractor beam, and he said it, too, he said it exactly right. We call it the accompanied referral. He actually goes, I go with him to that appointment. It's That's the what support we teach in QPR, piece. The, is the referral you take the person right now and you plan it out. We ask when you know somebody's in trouble, you're going to meet with them, plan it out ahead of time. Where are you going to take them? What's the referral? 
set all that those pieces in motion, and then you do the intervention and you carry it right through to the referral. Get you know, safe. I have to say that I think this is also being done on a, a remote basis because, for example, I've been on the phone having similar conversations and asked permission to make a three-way call to a lifeline. Sure. And exactly. then introduce, talk, and don't get off the phone until they want me to get off the phone. Right. Um, because you're doing a warm handoff, and it, it can be done remotely. Because you said you were remote. What if he's not near you anymore? But it's the going with and walking alongside. Talk a bit about, too, the importance of follow-up. I know of only one helpline right now where they do follow-up after. I think everyone has that intention. I just don't see it happening on a regular no. basis. This is There are some things that actually work in suicide prevention, and follow-up is one of them. Uh, we teach this in the QPR method. You follow up. You follow up forever if you want to. But mm-hmm. follow-up, whether it's a phone call or whether it's in person, whatever it is, that's the one evidence-based intervention that actually reduces suicide rates. It's been done. The, the studies have been done in Italy and I think Boston and some other places, and they're doing them now. I'm, I'm an advisor on the Military Research Consortium, and my medical director is now doing a study. They're doing a research project at the University of Washington on following up with soldiers who come into clinics on bases uh, for for behavioral health or other kinds of issues. Then they start getting what are called caring emails. And they stay in touch with that person for, uh, I don't know how long the study design is for, but, but that's one of the things that really works. And if you, if everybody who gets involved in the life of someone who's considering suicide, if you stay in touch with them, there's this thing about somebody cares about me enough, you know, I'm going to stay alive and look for them to, you know, to have conversations with them. I used to do this all my suicidal patients when I had a clinic and I followed up with all of them, um, at, at six months in a year, and, you know, so far, so good. Paul, the most important part, how do people learn QPR? Well, they can learn it online or through any of our, our instructors. We have thousands of instructors around the country, and the list of instructors is, uh, we're currently going through a new web design, but we have a list of instructors by state, and they can they can Google us and come to our website and get uh, names of instructors. And uh, they can take it address? online, and they can take it what we call a blended. They can take it online and then meet with an instructor in a classroom. Okay, um, it's called qprinstitute.com? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so QPR. The new course for veterans is right there on the home page. Okay, um, so it specifically has a veteran uh path. So qprinstitute.com to find out information on how to learn, how to question, persuade, refer, and have this in your pocket if you need it. Remember, it's not always just the vets. It also can be the veteran families that have such really difficult times after um, or during deployments, etc. And we aren't tracking in any way military family suicidal attempts or completions. So it's important that we spread the word about QPR, about how and where to get the information to learn. And information really does empower a person to at least feel that they could take a step in the right direction, even if you refer the rest of it to someone else. So we encourage everyone to go check out qprinstitute.com, the veteran section. 
and um, pay attention to this new tool that we can have. And Paul and John, any last words? You have about two and a half minutes to close well, I out to make sure your people, overview. I just want to make sure people knew there was a discount for veterans and families and volunteers. So, are you can going you to tell share them that? that? Can you share how modest this fee is? Uh, well, the the training course is over six hours, and it's seventy nine dollars. But the discount code at the prompt uh, for people is a forty percent discount, and that's uh, QPRV QPRV for veteran, and that will give everybody who's interested a forty percent discount. If they want to take just the QPR Gatekeeper training program, the basic course, they enter QPRO, and that'll give them a thirty three percent discount on the online training. Okay. And so, there's a free book in the bookstore, Suicide the Forever Decision. It's available to anybody who needs it, and it's also an iPhone app. And I gave it away to the world here a few years ago. It's a little hard to find, but it's in PDF, and you can download it and give it to someone who's thinking about suicide. And it's a conversation with me. It's actually written in the second person. Okay. Justin, questions? Uh, well, I'm, I'm thrilled with how inexpensive uh, the training is. And what a great discount that you provide, Paul. So, so thank you. Well, this a, is about our mission to. Sure. I mean, I'm really tired of seeing veterans die. I'm telling you, I'm really tired of it. So, <laughs> we're doing everything we know how to do and keep, keep the doors open. So. Well, you certainly are, and it's amazing how many trainers you have around the country who are out there providing this stuff. And, and I hope that, you know, it becomes as popular as CPR and, and becomes part of our vocabulary, because that will mean our country has taken a real positive turn on the issue of behavioral health, and we feel comfortable talking about these issues. Bravo. Well, we know that the research shows that people who go through the training talk to at least, on average, about five other people. So... And they share the materials, they share what they learned, they have a new conversation. A lot of times that leads to finding that someone's in trouble. And so that means we're impacting, you know, 100,000 people yeah. a month are having yeah. a new conversation about suicide. So that's our aim is reaching that tipping point. Let's keep it that way and let's keep working toward training more people. Thank you so much for being with us today. QPR, question, persuade, and refer. A wonderful way. For suicide prevention, learn it. Go to qprinstitute.com. And we are delighted to have you on the program today. And we will post this program right after the show. Thank you for listening to Mill Resource Radio. For more information, go to millresourceradio.com.